Today is the first Sunday of the month, and on the first Sunday of the month, we, we set aside this Sunday to take communion. We'll be doing that uh, later after the sermon. Um, but we also, because of that, we decided as a church to not hold children's church on the first Sunday of the month, so that it, it's a time that the children can participate in communion or watch, witness communion. There is an aspect of communion that, that is uh, to be observed by others as a demonstration of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we hope as a church to spark gospel-centered discussions on your car ride home or around your lunch table about, hey, what's up with the cracker and juice? And, and hopefully you can use that to tell them about Jesus Christ, the Son of God, dying on the cross to save them from their sins. Uh, so that's our goal in that. So that is why, kids, you are staying here. We'll open up to John chapter 17. John chapter 17 is what's often called the high priestly prayer of Jesus Christ. He, he spends these 26 verses in prayer. And he is praying with, and, and as we'll see later, he's praying for his disciples. And in this prayer, he's looking down through the course of history, and he's even praying for you and for me. And that is an incredible thing to look at that prayer. We're going to take this in three pieces. The first part of the prayer, he's praying for himself. We'll look at that today. In the second part, he prays for his disciples, the 11 that are still with him. Judas has already uh, gone off to betray him. He's praying for them. And then in the, following, or the last of the three sections, he's praying for all believers, all who will come to faith in Jesus Christ. And we're going to do this today uh, by, by looking at it from kind of two different angles. One is Frederick Nietzsche declared that God is dead. So we're going to bring in that very deep and, and very misguided philosophical notion and look at that. And, and the other part that we're going to look at is, is how you can use a magnifying glass to fry little things and roast them. So these two things together will be brought into the sermon. So, so watch for that. When I was a kid, I, I did enjoy getting a, a magnifying glass out into our driveway. And my brother and I would sit there, and you could kind of write your name on the ground. If you focused it just right, you could burn your name into the driveway. And I think the rain washed it off. I'm not really sure. Um, you, you, could, you could roast other things as well. Uh, some people use it to, to burn ants. That's cruel and really hard to do, as it turns out. But don't, that's, don't, you shouldn't, shouldn't do that, kids. Don't, don't hurt the ants. Uh, my, my brother and I actually enjoyed using trick cereal. I don't know why, but I think the sugar content. And when you would get it in, the, you focus the light. Have you done this right? Everybody knows how to do this. Take the magnifying glass and you focus the light of the sun. And when you focus on a little piece of trick cereal, probably any other sugary cereal, it, it bubbles and it kind of grows and then it melts and it chars and it smells like burnt caramel. It's, it's really exciting. This is, <laughs> welcome to my childhood. Uh, this is how we spend hours. No. But it was a lot of fun. Magnifying glass used in that way is an interesting thing. Because when you think about it, the sunlight is all around us. Well, not here, because we're inside. But when you're outside, it's all around you. We don't necessarily see the light in the air, obviously. We see it when it hits something. And, and when you look at a car or a parking lot or a flower or a house or a person, you're seeing the light of the sun reflected off of them. Now, if we were to go outside, I don't have any problem looking at you. I don't have a problem looking at the house or the flowers or the trees. But I have a really big problem looking at the sun. My eyeballs can't take it. It's too much. 
And a magnifying glass takes this powerful light, this intense light of the sun, and if used, I guess you could argue correctly or incorrectly, but if used in such a way, it takes that light, which is able to be seen on things, and it focuses it to a single point, an intense, burning point of light. And that's what I want to talk to you about today, as Jesus is going to pray about the focus of the glory of God in salvation. Jesus magnifies and focuses the glory of God into your salvation and my salvation. Now, the big difference here between a magnifying glass, and well, there's many, but between a magnifying glass and, and the glory of, of Christ is that the magnifying glass has no glory in and of itself. It's just reflecting, refracting, changing the, the, the radiance of the sun. Jesus is the radiance of God. But he's the radiance of God in a way that we can see. We can look at him. We can understand him more and more. Now, as we jump in with us in our series on John, the the context of this is it's the night before, or actually the night of, Jesus' arrest and the night before his crucifixion. And he he is spending these hours, I believe must have been hours, preparing his disciples for this intense time that is about to come when they will watch him be dragged away, put into a mockery of a trial, persecuted, put on a cross, and put to death. And so I want to read the beginning of this prayer. We're going to look at verses 1 through 5 this morning. You can follow along in your Bible. If you don't have a Bible, there should be one in the pew in front of you or under the the seat of your chair somewhere. Uh, And I haven't said this in a while, but if, if you really don't have a Bible, not just forgot to bring it, but if you don't have one, Steal ours. That's that's our gift for you. Uh, just take it. We'll get more. But I, I really would like you to have your own Bible in your own home. Just promise me you're not going to put it on a shelf somewhere to decorate. Uh, read it. Open it up. Start in the Gospel of John. It's a wonderful place to read. So let me read John chapter 17, verses 1 through 5. After Jesus said this, he looked toward heaven and prayed, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that your Son may glorify you. For you granted him authority over all people, that he might give eternal life to all those you have given him. Now this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I have brought you glory on earth by finishing the work you gave me to do. And now, Father, Glorify me in your presence with the glory I had with you before the world began. There's actually one request in this prayer. Only one. Out of the five verses, there's one request and it's repeated twice. It's repeated, it's stated in verse 1 and repeated in verse 5. And it is that the Father, God the Father, would glorify the Son. Now, the pattern of this prayer is important, and it helps us to see what it is that Jesus is trying to emphasize. So follow along with me. In verse 1, we have the request, glorify your son. And then if you look down to verse 5, he repeats it. And now, Father, glorify me in your presence. 
So there's the context of this prayer. This is the subject. The subject of this prayer is that the Father, God the Father, would glorify Jesus Christ, God the Son, through what is about to happen, the cross and the resurrection. So that's kind of the envelope of of this prayer, the bookends. Then in verse 2, he talks about what he came to do, the work that he came for. It says, you granted him authority over all people that he might give eternal life to all those you have given him. This is why he came, to bring eternal life. And then if you skip down to verse 4, you see, again, he mentions the work that he came to do. He has finished the work. So we have this this broad category, this, this envelope of glory. This is the main subject. And then we move in a little bit further. And we have the work that Christ has done. And now we are getting to the focal point of the prayer of Jesus Christ. And it's found right there in the middle in verse 3. Now this is eternal life. That they know you, the only true God in Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. In Jesus' mind, the focal point in all of history of the glory of God is the salvation of people through Jesus Christ. What an honor. What a privilege to be saved by Jesus Christ That God views that as so important that it is the greatest demonstration of His glory throughout history. And so that's what I want to talk about this morning. And let's begin with looking at this light of glory. What is this light? What does it mean that God is to be glorified, that Jesus is to be glorified? What is glory? Well, let's pick through the verse and we'll see it as we go. He starts in verse 1. Father, the hour has come. This is the moment of the culmination of why Jesus Christ was born in a manger, why he has lived, why he did the miracles that he did, called the disciples. The hour has come. It has all come to this. The incarnation, which is God taking on flesh. Jesus Christ is God incarnate, God in the flesh. The purpose of that incarnation was so that we could know God. When you hear Jesus speak through the Gospels, you're hearing the voice of God. When you see the actions of Jesus in the Gospels, you're seeing the actions of God. He reveals God to us. That's an important part of his ministry, but it's not the focal point. All of that was a means to an end. And the end is the cross and the resurrection to bring salvation to all who will believe. That is the purpose for his coming. It is the focus of God's work in history. And so now he says, so here's where it's all leading to. Glorify your son, that your son may glorify you. Well, that is incredibly selfish, isn't it? Hey, Father, make me look awesome. I want to be pretty special. I don't know if you and I should be praying that particular prayer. This is for Jesus. And there's a reason for it. The glory of Christ is a major theme in this gospel. In fact, I really quick just punched into a search engine, glory or glorification, glorify in in the gospels. And it turns out John uses those words, it's it's kind of a range of Greek words. If you added up all the other gospels combined in their use of that word, they don't equal how many times John uses that word or those words. It's a major theme in this gospel. Think about it. In John 1.14, we're introduced to Jesus as the Word. The Word became flesh and made His dwelling among us, and we have seen His, what? His glory. 
So, so right there in chapter 1, as it's talking about the incarnation, it's bringing in this theme of, through Jesus, we are witnessing the very glory of God. The glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. And then what is often called the beginning of his public ministry in John chapter 2, uh, verse 11, he turns water into wine at this wedding in Cana. And John helpfully tells us in verse 11, what Jesus did here in Cana of Galilee was the first of the signs through which he revealed his glory. And his disciples believed in him. I've called this sermon series, Don't Miss This. I haven't referred to that a whole lot. I hope you haven't missed it. See what I did there? But this is a major theme that John is saying, don't miss this. Don't miss that when these people saw Jesus Christ, they were witnessing the focal point of the glory of God and who He is and in what He is doing. Don't miss it. He's not just some religious teacher. He's not just some helpful advice for our life. He is the burning epicenter of the display of the glory of God. This book is full of Jesus bringing glory to the Father. In everything that he does, he is displaying, reflecting, drawing glory, reflecting glory back to God the Father. And there is a foreshadowing in this book. There's this talk about this hour that is coming, this time that is coming, the culmination of his ministry. And now Jesus is saying, this is it. And it's the cross and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So what is Glory. Scripture says that all of creation, Psalm 19, all of creation displays the glory of God. The heavens declare the glory of God and the skies proclaim the work of His hands. Psalm 19, verse 1. So what is glory? This is a huge term that's kind of difficult to define. The best definition I can give, which is probably not all that helpful... But I think it's all-encompassing. The glory of God is the display of God being God. It's simply the display of who God is and His attributes and His actions and everything that He is. When God displays who He is, you are seeing His glory. God's work in history shows His glory. Intentionally, God has chosen to do what He does as a display of His glory. In Ezekiel chapter 20, the prophet's referring back to the Exodus when God brings his people up out of Egypt and saves them. And he explains why he did this. Ezekiel chapter 20 verse 9 says, But for the sake of my name, I brought them out of Egypt. Now that's fascinating. Because I think the Israelites would have said, Hey, this was pretty good for us. You saved us out of our slavery and brought us into a a new land. Now, obviously, they had some complaints along the way, but in general, this was a really good thing for them. And yet God is saying, I did it for me. This is another key theme, theme in Scripture. When God works for his own glory, it is always, always what's best for us. And if I could just give you a a little hint of the end of this sermon, when we work for the glory of God, it is always, always best for us. See, we like to turn that around and say, I'll do what's good for me, and that'll bring glory to God. That doesn't work. 
that reinterprets scripture. It, it realigns values with what we want. No, we need to seek His glory, reflecting His glory first and foremost. And Jesus is this wonderful example of this. Even though He is God, He is God in the flesh with all the glory, He still is constantly saying, I want to reflect, I want to show the glory of God. Everything God does is for His glory. The display of His greatness, His power, His righteousness, His justice, His love, His grace, all of His attributes display, shine forth the glory of God. And so some believe here that Jesus is praying for the resurrection. Father, glorify me. And and they, they see that He is saying, don't let me just stay on the cross and die. Raise me up from the dead. Now, granted, the resurrection is a powerful display of the glory of God. When you share the gospel, when you think about the gospel, and when I share the gospel with you as I try every sermon multiple times, I hope you get sick of hearing it. Well, I hope you don't get sick of hearing it, but I hope you remember it. The cross and the resurrection. Because if there is no resurrection, there is no confidence in the cross. Anybody can die. I'm pretty sure everybody can Nobody except the Son of God can raise himself from the dead, promising eternal life because of his victory over sin and death. So the resurrection is a profound display of the glory of God. And so certainly in this prayer, I do believe he is praying for that moment, Father, glorify me when he's raised up out of the grave. But I think that's a little too narrow to see that that's all that he's praying for. As Christians, we need to see the cross with its shame, with its agony, with the humiliation as one of the greatest displays of the glory of God ever. The all-powerful, all-knowing God takes on flesh and serves us By taking our place in what should have been our judgment, our punishment, our pain that we earned, and He takes it upon Himself. What the world looked at and saw as the ultimate defeat of the Son of God, Jesus looks at and says, That's my glory. And Christians, that's your glory. We can talk about things that we do and how well things are going, and that's good. We need to give God glory in that. But never, ever forget that God is most glorified in you when you are clinging to the cross of Jesus Christ and saying, that should have been me. He took my place. I am saved because of Him. And God is glorified in that. Don't ever lose sight of that. So what Jesus is praying for here is that God would bring glory to Himself as He goes to the cross and then rises from the dead. And look at the purpose of this. Not only that God would glorify Jesus, but look at then what He says, so that your Son may glorify you. Even Jesus is saying, Father, bring glory to me in this moment as I go through this, and it's all so that I might bring glory to you. Oh, that that would be our total philosophy in life. 
that everything God does in our lives for us, through us, would ultimately be for His own glory. We are just reflectors of the glory of God. I fear sometimes as Christians, we get in a mindset that we have to manufacture glory for God's sake. That we have to manufacture environments. That we have to manufacture works to bring glory to God as if somehow we're going to make something and offer it up to God and say, look, I did this for you. The gospel is that God has done this for us. And our lives are merely a display of that glory. And all good things in our life, we come back to Him and say, God, You did this in me, and it is all for Your glory. God works for His own glory. It is His greatest purpose in everything that He does. It is keeping Himself first in all things. Because the greatest good is to keep the greatest good as the greatest good. So if God did not keep himself first in all things, he would put something lesser in the place of greatness in his own life. And there's a word in scripture for that. It's called idolatry. If we place anything in that place where God should be, that becomes an idol. So God must keep himself first in all things that he does. And the beauty of this that when God does that, we get salvation. We get His love and His mercy and the revelation through His Scripture and the incarnation of the Son of Jesus Christ all because God is passionately concerned with His own glory. The glory of God is a huge concept that's very difficult to understand. But I challenge you as you read Scripture, and I pray that you do, as you read Scripture, watch for ways that God is bringing glory to Himself. Don't just read Scripture and say, what does this mean for me? What does this mean for me? What does it mean for me? Stop and say, what is God saying about Himself? And you'll start to see these these shining beacons of how God is working for His own glory. But like I said, this is a big concept that's hard to understand. It's it's like the light of the sun that's so difficult we can't look at it. And God understands and that's why he sent Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is, is this lens through which we can see God. He is the glory of God incarnate in such a way that we can look at him and not have our eyeballs burned out of their sockets. We say, I see God. I, I can understand this aspect of God. And look at what he says about his incarnation, who he is. He says, glorify your son that your son may glorify you. Verse 2, for you granted him authority over all people that he might give eternal life to all those you have given him. Christ is Lord of all. He has authority over all people. So, so let's stop and think for a second, a little bit of logic. Are you one of all people? Okay. Does Christ have authority over you? Yes. Now think about those people in, in the world, society, your family, your work. Maybe you're struggling with. Does Christ have authority over them? Yes. Think about movements in history where things are great and then things struggle. Is Christ is he an authority over that? Yes. He has authority over all things. 
I wish I could remember that more often. And and I hope you wish that for yourself as well. I hope we pray that for ourselves. Jesus, remind me constantly that you are an authority over all things. Because man, I've got a short-term memory problem with that one. When, when stuff gets difficult and I'm struggling and I'm trying to figure out and it's what can Dave do? How can Dave fix this? How can I make myself look good? I need to stop and just go, wait a minute. He's an authority over all things. And how does he display that authority? How do we see that authority in action? Does he get up and bang his gavel? Well, one day. But how did he start? He served You granted him authority over all people that he might give eternal life to all those you have given him. Christ's act of self-sacrificing his own life on the cross on our behalf is always tied into his authority. This was foreshadowed a couple chapters ago in John chapter 13. The disciples are gathering for for this moment when they're going to share a meal together and Jesus is going to talk to them. And how did he start the whole night? Says verse 3, John chapter 13, Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power and that he had come from God and was returning to God. Jesus knows full well who he is. And John's bringing that to the forefront and saying, because Jesus is who he is with all authority, what does he do? He puts on the clothing of a servant and he gets down on the floor and he washes their dirty, smelly feet. That's what all authority looks like, friends. It doesn't look like somebody standing up and saying, you do what I say or else. That's not authority. That's selfishness. The authority of Jesus Christ in motion serving us in the greatest possible way through the cross. The cross is the greatest service which required the greatest authority. Which is why Jesus says that he has this authority that he might give eternal life to all those you have given him. I believe, friends, that sometimes we take the part of the gospel that says he will save us and there is joy and we want to leave behind the part that talks about the authority of Jesus Christ. They are all one and the same. If you are saved by Jesus Christ, he must be the authority in your life. You cannot have one without the other. We cannot separate the two when when the scriptures hold them intricately together. And then note that it says this salvation that he is going to work for, this authority that leads to salvation is to all those you have, speaking to the Father, you have given him. We've talked about this throughout the Gospel of John. Again, here's a reference in the Gospel of John to the eternal, sovereign plan of God. He knows in advance who is going to come to salvation. It is under his authority and his power. And Jesus states it right there in his prayer. Jesus shows us the glory of God. He shows it in how he treats people and how he serves and everything that he does. But the shining point, the focal point, 
of this glory in the work of Christ is in how he died on the cross and rose from the dead. And so we come to the focal point of this prayer. The blazing point of light in the middle of Jesus' prayer. Now this, verse 3, is eternal life that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Our salvation is like that light of the sun that has been taken by the magnifying glass and focused. And in your salvation and how God is at work in you, changing you as a new creation in Jesus Christ, in the way that we interact as a church, and we'll see that as he moves into the prayer for all believers, he prays for unity in the church. That unity driven by that salvation is a focal point of the glory of God in this world. And man, the world needs to see it. This is eternal life. That's what we were created for. We were created all the way back in the Garden of Eden. God created humanity to live in His presence eternally, perfectly in this wonderful, beautiful, perfect relationship. And then sin entered in. And Adam and Eve said, nope, we know our own way. We're going to go our own way. We're going to do our own thing. And death comes into the picture. But here, Jesus says, God in His glory is bringing about eternal life through God the Son for His own glory. He says that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. All of our lives, the whole purpose of our creation is to know who God is, to live in His presence, to reflect His glory for our good and His glory eternally. Yet the Bible talks about sin entering in. The Romans talk about turning away from the knowledge of God. And and we looked after other things. We ran after other things. That's what sin is all about. I'm going to replace God with something else that I think is better. And it never is. Part of the essence of our salvation. Yes, it's, it's to be saved from our sin, to have eternal life. But we need to also capture this idea of knowing God. This is, this is the wonderful joy of being saved. You are brought from death to life, not just to be left there and say, hey, good luck, but for God to say, now you get to know me. You get to know me more and more every day as he reveals himself to us, as we study his word, as we walk together in the unity of the gospel of Jesus Christ, that we may know God. I pray that we have a burning desire in our hearts to know God more and more each and every day of our lives. I fear that there's been a time in church history that we've changed the gospel into like a notch that we put on a belt. Well, I prayed a prayer when I was five years old and therefore I'm saved. And God's going, but I want you to know me. If you're here, and and maybe you did Receive Jesus at one point in your life, and that's awesome, and it's beautiful. But don't miss out on the beauty of knowing your God and knowing His Son, Jesus Christ, more and more. Don't miss the gift because you haven't opened it all the way. 
There's such a joy and a beauty there in knowing God. And the truth is, we are idol factories. We create something to put in the place of God all the time. So if we aren't getting to know God more and more, we may not even be aware that we've put something in His place. He calls Him the only true God. We invent things to fill the void left by God in our life by our own sin. And so here, salvation is equated with knowing God and Christ. It's not enough to just be spiritual. It's not enough to just say, well, I'm a person of faith. There is no salvation without Jesus Christ. We must know Him. We must know who He is and what He's done. It's so simple, a child can understand it. But I truly believe we will spend all of eternity knowing God and knowing Jesus more and more and more and more. I think it will be one of the greatest joys of eternity in heaven is just learning more things about God the Father and God the Son. This is the focal point of this prayer. The main request is God's glory through the Son. And the means of this glory is right here, our salvation. So the greatest glory of or the greatest goal of God is his own glory, and the greatest expression or display of that glory according to this is our salvation through his son Jesus Christ. But think about the moment that the disciples are hearing this. Think about what's about to come. Here's Jesus is talking about this wonderful, awesome moment of glory, and he's about to be arrested and hung on a cross, and they're going to think, man, we have failed completely. Did Jesus fail? Or did he succeed? Look at verse 4. I have brought you glory on earth by finishing the work you gave me to do. What was the work? He said in verse 2, that he might give eternal life to all those you have given him. And so now we can say in verse 4, it's done. Wait a minute, Jesus, you haven't gone to the cross yet. I mean, that's kind of crucial. The whole resurrection thing. I mean, how can you say it's done? Because he's God. Because Jesus Christ sees all of history from beginning to end, and he knows it is finished And in fact, those are the words he's going to use on the cross just in case we missed it. It is finished. It's done. I have done the work. I have accomplished what God has sent me to do. I have brought him glory. I have paid for your sin. I have brought eternal life to all who will believe. It is finished. The work for your salvation, friends, is done. Not just started, it's done. So many lies are being taught in this world today that Jesus has done so much, now you have to do the rest. It is already done. The beauty of the Christian life is that we are living in a salvation that is fully accomplished and given to us as a gift. All of our obedience is simply living out the new life that we have already been given. It is never ever to accomplish or earn that life in any way, shape, or form. And any teaching that says otherwise is completely out of line with the Word of God and should be and must be rejected. The work for your salvation is done. 
Think of the joy that brings in our life when you wake up tomorrow morning. Or don't even wait that long. Just just stop and think right now. It's done. You are, you're safe. If you believe in Jesus Christ and you've accepted Him as your Savior, the work is done. You are free to live for the glory of God. This has always been God's plan. Let's look at verse 5. And now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory I had with you before the world began. God's, or Jesus isn't here praying that he would earn God's glory. Like, man, I hope I make it and pull this one off so that I can bring glory to God. No, he has always been God. He has always had the glory of God. He has always existed, always been God, always displayed God's perfect glory. And so here he looks into eternity past and he says, yep, Jesus Christ had the glory of God there. It's always been God's plan from the beginning for this moment, for Him to display that glory on the cross and in the resurrection. And then He looks into eternity future and He says, glorify me in your presence there. And He sees that future and it's already accomplished. And friends, one day, if you're saved by Jesus Christ, you're going to see that future too. The glory of God as as Jesus sits on His throne and He reigns supremely with all authority eternally forever. This plan for God's glory through our salvation has always been in place. God didn't just sit on His throne fretting, what am I going to do now? Everything's been screwed up. Maybe we'll try this. That's not the God that we serve. He has known the end from the beginning. And when we trust in Christ for our salvation, we are trusting in His eternal plan. In 1882, Frederick Nietzsche in a collection of essays called The Joyful Pursuit of Knowledge and Understanding, wrote that modern science has brought about the death of God. He didn't actually mean that God has died. Nietzsche never believed in God. What he meant was society has gotten to a point where they realize they have no more need of God. Practically speaking, there's no necessity for any faith in God anymore. Science has taken the place. But as he, even as an atheist, as he reflected on this, listen to his words. He wrote, God is dead. God remains dead and we have killed him. How shall we comfort ourselves, the murderers of all murderers? What was holiest and mightiest of all that the world has yet owned has bled to death under our knives. Who will wipe this blood off us? What water is there for us to clean ourselves? What festivals of of atonement? What sacred games shall we have to invent? Is not the greatness of this deed too great for us? Must we ourselves not become gods simply to appear worthy of it? He understood that even practically, not, not spiritually, but practically, something had been lost when God was taken out of the picture. And as a philosopher, he wanted to put something else in its place. What Nietzsche put in its place was horrific. But he was on to something. In another place, he would describe this this modern world free from the need of God. He he would use the word weightless. Untethered from, from all spiritual things, all religion, all faith. We can just pursue science, but he said it's weightless. The Hebrew word for glory means weighty, foundational. 
solid. When we replace the glory of God in our world for anything else, we become untethered and weightless. God's glory shines through all of history. And it shines in a particular way that we can see and understand through His Son, Jesus Christ. And then becomes this intentional, intense focal point for the light of God's glory through the cross and the resurrection. And then we, as we are saved, become that focal point moving through history so that the world can see. And this weightless world desperately needs to see focal points of the weightiness of the glory of God. Magnifying glasses take something small and make them large. A better picture for our Christian lives is a telescope. We take something enormous and through the power of God, we're able to display it in our lives in a way that others can see and hopefully come up to us and say, what is it that you're pointing at? That, that thing I'm glimpsing through your life that I don't quite understand. And we can say, let me tell you about Jesus Christ.